0: Hi everyone, on behalf of National Queer Theater and Dixon Place, we are so excited to welcome you to the second Criminal Queerness Festival presented in partnership with the Mayor's Office of Immigrant Affairs and New York City Pride. My name is Adam Odses Rubin. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm the Founder and Artistic Director of National Queer Theater. The Criminal Queerness Festival showcases LGBTQ playwrights from countries that criminalize queer communities and we could not be more grateful to you for joining us today. During these difficult times, we look to the artists in our world for hope and healing. We'd like to take a brief moment of silence now to honor our black siblings who have been taken from us through violence and especially our black trans siblings who have fallen to transphobia. Thank you. Today we have a very special panel for you on the first play of our festival, Mosque for Mosque, and the effects of the Syrian civil war on LGBTQ communities in the region. If you're able to support our artists at this time, we invite you to visit nationalqueertheaterorg donate. We appreciate the generosity of the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and New York City Pride for sponsoring this year's festival. Now, I'd like to introduce my friend and festival co founder, playwright, and dramaturg, Adam Ashraf El
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much, Adam Rubin. I'm um, so excited to be here with all of you. As Adam uh, mentioned, this, uh, this is the opening event this year of the Criminal Queerness Festival, which uh, was which we founded because we wanted to center these stories that didn't have a platform elsewhere or that were um, were in context about criminalization. And I'm so excited to be part of this conversation with you today and moderating a conversation around the Syrian civil war and the effect it's had on LGBT people. Um, I use he, him, his pronouns. And yeah, so for today, we have four incredible guests who we will speak with um, for who I we have created a conversation with for around 40 minutes. And then for the last 20 minutes of the conversation, um, we will be soliciting Q&A questions from you, which you can send us through the Q&A feature on Zoom or in the comments section on Facebook Live. And yeah, I'm going to ask all the panelists to come on board right now. Thank you, everyone. It's so wonderful to be here with all of you. First, we have uh, Abbas Salim, uh, who is a Chicago-based actor and playwright, originally from Syria, Turkey, and Egypt. And he is the playwright behind Mosque for Mosque, which is our opening play for this iteration of the festival. Hi, Abbas. Hi, everyone. Tell us more about yourself and your piece.
2: Sure. I wrote this play after I did an internship at the Actors Theatre of Louisville and during my internship there we were encouraged to find plays that spoke to us and spoke to our cultures and who we are as people and I was literally looking through the archives of 4,500 plays that had been submitted to this hub of new work which Actors Theatre very clearly is and I couldn't find a single play that was about a Muslim family living in America that had nothing to do with terrorism or nothing to do with fanaticism or nothing to do with hate or homophobia. And that was startling to me. So as soon as I came home, I thought that I would try writing a play and this is what came of it.
1: Thank you, Abbas. Uh, Next up we have Noor Hamdi, who is a Syrian American Muslim and queer actor based in New York and who is playing Ibrahim uh, in Mosque for Mosque this year. Hello Noor, how are you? I'm good, how
3: are you? Thank you for having me today. It's an honor to be here.
1: Yeah, we're excited to have this conversation. And next up, we have Danny Ramadan, who is a Syrian-Canadian award-winning author of The Clothesline Swing and public speaker and LGBTQ activist and advocate for refugee rights.
4: Yes. Hi, Adam, how are you? I hope you're having a good day. Um, She is all the way from Vancouver. It's still raining here. Uh, As you said, my name is Daniel Ramadan, and my pronouns are he, him, and his. Uh, I am an author, and I have been all of my life uh, since before I came to Canada, and I arrived to Canada uh, specifically because of my queer identity. I arrived as a refugee in 2014, and now I am one of um, the Canadian literature scene's um, um, writers uh, known for my work.
1: Thank you, Danny. Uh, last but not least, we have Vita mostofi, who's a longtime immigrant rights advocate and human rights organizer and who since May of twenty eighteen been the commissioner of the Mayor's office of Immigrant Affairs. We're so excited to have you with us and to hear more
5: about your work. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for including me. Uh, my pronouns are she her, and you know this is um something uh that is near and dear to my heart i Um, I'm a longtime uh, immigrant rights lawyer and, in fact, represented many, many asylum seekers from all over the world who are are were LGBTQ um, and seeking uh, refuge. And I think um, they came to be, for me, some of the nearest and dearest um, in the work that I did and their stories continuously inspire me in the work that I do. So I'm so honored to be a part of this and to hear the stories and to participate in this conversation. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you, Bita. Uh, and my first question is a general question that Abbas, you've already touched on a little bit, which is like why you chose to write Mask for Mask. Um, and then the question, is beyond, because I know that all of you are involved in the arts and storytelling in different ways, is how do you navigate like Centering representation in the ways you write, and how do you resist um, orientalist narratives or narratives that are always um, trying to center the Middle East from like the idea of a terrorist, and that's all it is. Uh, and what is your work is like activism or immigration affairs. Like, how do you honor that mission?
4: I can go first, just to avoid the awkwardness of waiting silently. Um, so I'm, I'm working on my next novel. Uh, I published The Line Swing in 2017, and I just finished writing my next novel. And I was on a very similar situation. I was talking on Zoom to a group of, uh, of people. And one of the questions that I got asked is, what is the novel, the new novel, is about? So I said it was about queer Syrian refugees and how they're navigating their new lives here in Canada. And the follow-up question was, but you wrote The line Swing about that. And and that's literally why I want to continue writing about representing queer Syrian refugees in uh, literature, because there's not a single story out there. It's not that I wrote The line Swing, it's about gay Syrian refugees, and now I'm done, and I can write about, I don't know, um, a white family in Saskatchewan. It's it's important to continue writing the diverse, unique perspectives of what it means to be a queer Syrian person uh, from from the many different lived experiences that uh, queer Syrian folks are um, navigating, um, whether uh, through their experience finding a way to come here to 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 the Western world or. Uh, integrating here or even deciding to stay back home and 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 change the word that they cannot accept
1: thank you i feel, i find the assumption of a statement like that so dangerous it's like how many still so, how many movies do we have about like an american guy that goes to war uh like a white cis american man who goes to war and yet nobody will ever say that statement to somebody who's making that movie whereas mm. like the assumption is that like the refugee experience or the Syrian experience or the like queer Arab experience is one. And mm-hmm. the danger of the single narrative then becomes that like everybody will put all of their assumptions about that one thing to, on that one narrative. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm gonna move on to you best because I, I want people to hear more about Mosque for Mosque specifically and how, how you chose to center representation in Mosque for Mosque and the story of it and for people because I know that the piece has not happened yet. So tell us a little bit about the place.
2: For sure. Um, My primary goal in writing Mosque for Mosque was to create spaces for Arab artists and Arab actors and Arab designers who don't normally get to do their work on stage and and get to create Arab work on stage. Most often as an actor, I find myself playing parts that look nothing like me or I'm in an adaptation of a Shakespeare play that's for some reason set in Saudi Arabia. And that's why I'm in the room. So I intended on writing something that had an older Arab actor in it and a younger Arab actor in it and Arab actors of all different ages. And I wanted to create a script that involved um, a photo artist and uh, that created a set that a set designer could actually put a thumbprint on and change and use technology towards so that each person that's contributing to the play is not only in the play but like showing their best assets. So that if you are an artist who gets to perform in this play or gets to contribute to this play, hopefully the people who watch it not only will see your work for the first time but will see everything that you can do. Um, I wanted it to be a showcasing thing It came from the phrase Mosque for Mosque, which I just thought of one day and it really made me laugh. And I wondered what that would be. And I was like, it would probably be a gay dating app, wouldn't it? (laughs) Um, So my options were either to create the app or to write about it, which seemed significantly easier. Um, And that's where we started.
1: Right. No, and so the play has an app that exists within it where Muslim identifying gay men can find each other and solicit relationships. Um, uh, not only and- that,
2: but they, it's an app for arranging marriages for
1: yes. queer
2: Muslims. So uh-huh. it's especially ridiculous. Right. Um, <laughs> but I just thought that from absolute humor, we could see some also tragic truth and hopefully it won't make the truth seem as awful if we're laughing at the same
1: time.
4: I think yeah, there's go- more for that. <laughs>
1: going off of that, I'm going to move on to Noor because I know that you are embodying Ibrahim who um, has to deal with that app in the world of the play. So tell us a little bit about what it, what it meant. To, uh, and I know that you and I have had conversations about what it means to Um, to start seeing these plays that are having queer Arab characters that, um, and the representation and what that has meant for you as an artist. So tell us about your experience with Mosk for Mosque with um, generally acting in plays like Mosk for Mosque.
3: Yeah. um, Well, kind of piggybacking off of what Abbas said, like in most of my acting history, especially in my acting training, it was really hard to find any play that focused on a story that I could actually relate to where I was often having to portray these people that, you know, they're cisgendered white men, that I really don't identify with. And it's not to say that as an actor, I can't do that. It's just that it's not the story that I want to tell. Um, Because for me, I love acting because I love storytelling. And I think that that's one of the most, at least for me anyways, the most important thing about acting is to be able to perpetuate stories and bring them to people in ways that are easily accessible. So, that being said, it's a breath of fresh air to have plays like the one that Abbas has written, and not to name drop you, Adam, but the one that you wrote last year that I was in, um, where we get to play, like I get to actually be a queer Arab person, person is the thing, that's the key word, is I get to be a person on the stage, not like a stereotype, I don't have to play like a refugee specifically, a terrorist specifically. You know what I mean? Like it's nice to be able to play somebody who could just be like I always say just like a John Doe or a Jane Doe character who's like just a person, you know. They just they just so happen to be like XYZ label. But you're just seeing the like a slice of their life that has nothing really to do with the label. Now I suppose in Mosque for Mosque like the queer identity does factor in and that is nice because we do need plays like that. I mean in the queer Arab community, we don't really have a multitude of plays that, that focus on our people. So it's nice to, to have that. And I think it's also nice that these people can be multi-layered characters that are fun to play.
1: Thank you so much. Moving on to Vita, I'd love to hear more from you about uh, how you came to be involved in immigrant affairs and then how you conceptualize Moya uh, as a part of your trajectory. And then what that has meant like partnering with National Career Theater and how you imagine the role of the arts in thinking about immigrants and sentiments around immigrants.
5: Sure, thank you again for having me. Um, you know, I um, I came to this work because my family are, is Iranian. My parents came here in 1979. and. Um, I've often struggled with some of the same themes that I heard my panelist colleagues speak to, which is representation of my community in media, the ability to relate um, and see ourselves both reflected, but also in a positive image um, and the continuous really demonization and othering that happens. You know, I'm somebody who um, can present as white, um, but uh, in every space that I operate in, there's like code switching that happens, right? Um, that there, there's a recognition that when I'm asked, "Well, where's my family from?" or when I was younger, sort of, "What am I eating for lunch?" Right? Um, all of these things that you're sort of forced to navigate, and for me. Um, those personal experiences um, the, that allowed me or, or made me, and I was lucky, we were earlier on the south side of Chicago, and so I was lucky to feel as though I had a deeper appreciation or understanding for what it was like um, to be in a sort of complex, Um, racial and racially segregated system. Um, And I think that gave me an appreciation for just the complexity of America and the the work that America needed to continue to do. And so my work has always been one of trying to um, both represent um, and fight for my community and a community of immigrants in our country. Um, as having both a seat at the table, but also tremendous value, both in terms of cultural, economic, um, civic and social contributions to the country and a necessity kind of relatedly to the work of my colleagues here, a humanization of who we are and what, and what our communities are like um, and a celebration of that. And so for me, the culmination of a lot of that work is what I'm able to do day to day. And I feel very lucky. I, you know, I get to spearhead an incredible team that has a goal of uh, empowering communities, you know, advocating at every levels of government for greater equity and justice. And I think um, for us, for me personally, that has been, a uh, uh, struggle. <laughs> it has been a challenge, but one in which I have appreciated even more the importance of storytelling and the importance of being able to humanize and make relatable our stories um, and to connect uh, people to the stories of individuals that are their neighbors and coworkers people they might see on the subway Um, to build some of the divide that's both arbitrary, but also systematic. And so um, that's been a huge part of our work. I've been really lucky to have colleagues like Eileen Reyes-Arias, who also believe in that cultural communication and the elevation of that work. And so always is looking for incredible partnerships to uh, allow us to do it. And the Criminal Queerness uh, Festival is a good example of that. I feel very lucky to be a part of this. Um, it is, as I said when I started, uh, personal for me in many ways, and also being Iranian and uh, recognizing the representation piece of this, um, that much more uh, important.
1: Thank you so much. We, we also really appreciate collaborating with you. Uh, I want to say that like, while I continue to ask questions to the panelists, you could also drop your questions in the Q&A for the final part of our panel. Uh, but my next question is for Danny, and I wanted to ask specifically, what are some of the challenges within the legal system as a queer person in Syria? And uh, you you touched on that, I, like, uh, but how that was part of your journey to Canada, and then um, how that differs like before uh, the civic unrest and um, or and after the civic unrest in Syria.
4: I think I think that there is a clear. Um, um border between what happened before the the civil war in Syria and what happened after the civil war in Syria, specifically regarding the queer community. because Syria as a country was um, walled in, closed in by the Syrian regime, uh, denying a lot of information, access to websites, access to the internet, access to books, uh, for the general public. But specifically, the queer community over there didn't have access to a space, a safe space, to be themselves, to be ourselves uh, in Damascus uh, before the civil war. We had, um, of course, if we're going to speak uh, from a from a perspective of the law, it's a three years uh, imprisonment without uh, um, uh, without seeing a judge. I think um, I don't know the English name for that um it's also public shaming so if you're caught in the act you end up with your photos in uh, the newspaper um, basically um, showcasing who you are so to warn the society from your sinful ways um so it's it's an honor killing of course like it is a, a rabid issue regarding a woman in Syria who might stray away from the families uh, morals, but also if a man killed his son for uh, homosexuality, uh, the Syrian um, uh, court system does not actually um, um, uh, persecute him. So there is all of those challenges before the civil war. What happened after the civil war is this like wonderful spark of the Syrian community wanting to know more, wanting to break away from this like gated community that was created for them. So there's a lot of more uh, action that is happening on the ground. There's a lot of more uh, work that is being done by Syrians uh, who are within Damascus, within Syria, or Syrians who are, like me, on the other side of the world or trying to, to cause some change in the world. Personally, when I was living in Damascus between 2011, 2010 2012, so for two years, I ran an underground LGBTQ center in Syria, uh, basically just like me and my friends. Uh, and we will invite queer men and queer women. And we will watch the birth cage. And we would watch uh, the vagina monologues. And we would talk about our feelings. And we will hold hands. and. Um, a lot of trauma of like uh, people hanging out with each other, but you know queer community, they love the drama. Um, so, and then in 2012, in May 2012, I got arrested for it. Uh, and that's basically what forced me out of the country. Six weeks later, after my arrest, I was forced into becoming a refugee in Lebanon and then two years later I became here. I came here as a Canadian. Um, final thought on that is that I try to change what I can and I try to leave what I can so I can't go back to Damascus and protest in the streets demanding queer rights. But I can, from my position of power here in Canada, uh, support organizations doing work to sponsor queer Syrian men, queer Syrian women, trans folks to come here to. Uh, to Canada, and that's specifically why a lot of my activism work is being done to fundraise and advocate for an organization called Rainbow Refugee here in Vancouver, and it's the organization that sponsored me to come to Canada.
1: Thank you so much. Oh, I'm I'm muted, sorry, classic. I, going off of that, I was going to go back to talking a little more about the play with you about, I found it like really meaningful how you um, chose to think about the family in relation to the politics of Syria and how what's happening in Syria um, impacts or doesn't impact the family and how and when it cho- it becomes part of the story and when it doesn't. So I'd love to hear from you about like why you made the choices you did in terms of like how the family engages with the politics and um, like specifically how uh, going off of that to another part of like the political spectrum also how the muslim ban influences parts of the story um yeah
2: definitely um well i initially wanted to have the syrian civil war as a major theme within the play because so many of the people that i know very well knew nothing about it and they're intelligent people that are in tune with politics and in tune with the world, but they still had been so far removed from this absolute atrocity that's happening not too far away from them. Um, so I thought that if I was able to introduce American audiences to a family that they learned to care about and showed how this family was affected by the war, then it might make it more consumable or more palatable for them. Um, It might make it more of an educational experience where they go home and they Google where they may not have done that before. Um, There are parts of the play where I try and include literal newscasts that are actual newscasts from Al Jazeera from the time so that audiences who maybe never heard of a newscast about the Syrian civil war from Syria by an Arabic journalist would have the opportunity to hear one whether they like it or not because they're in the audience and they have to leave if they don't want to. Um, And sort of connecting to it, Danny just mentioned, a play is a safe space for the people who are interacting with it. And very often as an Arab artist, I don't find that the plays I'm involved in feel like safe spaces. So. Part of this was to create a safe space for all of us that actually told something visceral about our worlds in a way that didn't have to center around tragedy. Um, I think a lot of the times when I do happen to see an Arabic narrative on stage. It's just so rife with absolute sadness and hand-wringing and crying and so many hijabs. And I'm like, that's not the way all of us live. And I think you all should see that.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, And because we touched on the Muslim ban a little bit, Bita, I know that like Moya did a lot of things related to that uh, in 2016 when it first emerged. And I'd love to hear from you about uh, what were the different initiatives that your organization took on.
5: Yeah, sure. And I just want to say to Abbas and, um, and, res- and kind of building off what he said that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, there's this inability to show the complexity of people's experiences um, in, in sort of mainstream media, but specifically in the news, right? You see sort of one very narrow um, picture, or understanding of people. So, um, there might be a civil war going on, but, you know, at, on the same time, there's parties and birthdays and weddings and all those pieces that are taking place too. And some of that is, is, is really beautiful. It's the resilience of the human spirit um, and the importance in recognizing the complexities that even in a moment of tragedy and strife and crisis, um, that in some ways feels outside of, so much outside of your control, you find a way to to be you and to live to live your life and to find joy within it. And I think that's really important. Um, and we often uh, don't see that complexity in work um, that's produced. So that's wonderful. Um, in terms of a band, yeah, you know, this was one of the first um, of what became many um, acts by the Trump administration, uh, in, in 2017 and now the preceding years that really in some ways, uh, though many would say we shouldn't have been surprised, sort of shocked, um, our system. Um, we, uh, many of us in the immigration space, right, we, we knew that President Trump or President Obama, excuse me, wasn't great. Um, he had been nicknamed the deporter in chief. Um, There was a lot, a lot of fight and sort of um, movement that led to uh, a change or shift in his policies. Um, And we certainly saw on the 2016 campaign trail, the rhetoric that um, uh, Trump was using, but I still think it seems unfathomable, right? That you would actually live a day Um, Even knowing all the things we all know, right, drone strikes in Yemen, invasion in Iraq, all the things that we know, it's still unfathomable that there would be a policy that would get issued that would literally separate um, families based on where they came from. Um, And uh, the travel ban was the first act um, that was done by the Trump administration to sort of signal the seriousness with which they were going to deliver on their campaign promises. And um, for many of us, it was a call to action. Um, even, e- even though we were doing the work, I think it was a realization that this was different. And so for us, it was a, you know, a a responsibility to show up at the airports um, to be where people were and to use both our bully pulpit, but also our connection to try and and understand and elevate what was happening. Um, And then to really dig deep into our communities and make sure that people had information that that information was in the right languages as the information was changing, um, that it was being updated and that there was a connection to legal services. But I have to say, you know, this is one of many uh, places where we couldn't do enough, right? That the the pain I've been in, you know, I've been in uh, rooms with mothers just crying about the fact that they can't be with their children. Um, and it is real, and that pain is unnecessary. It is a trauma that we will carry both as communities, but as a country for so many years and decades to come.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your work. Um, And this is a question that I had on my list for you, Danny, but that I'm seeing also reflected in some of the questions coming from the audience. Um, But as as a novelist and artist, how does the work you're doing as an activist influence your writing and vice versa? And then the follow-up question for that is, what are the different kinds of activism that are continuing to resist and be resilient against what's happening in Syria today?
4: Oh, (laughs) Um, I I think that it's really important to recognize the nuances of what it means to be an activist. Like for example, like I'll give you a very simple example. Uh, Today there's Noor and there's Abbas and there's myself. This is the first time I've been doing this kind of like panels for seven years now. This is the first time in those seven years that I am on a panel with another Syrian queer person. This is the first time in, in seven years that I'm on a panel with another Syrian. To begin with, regardless, I know, right? Habes is like dancing for us. Um, It is literally important to recognize that activism is not just, oh my god, let's like bring down, I don't know, the Syrian regime or end the civil war. It's about representation in every single aspect of how we are presented. I'm usually on the same stage with uh, two or three other cis white men who happen to be straight as well. They all write nonfiction um, uh, books about immigration. They they get all the juicy questions about like how do you think the impact of immigration is on Canada? How do you think I don't know the uh, the the immigration crisis, the crisis in Syria has caused A, B, or C. And then the questions come to me is when you arrived in Canada, were you happy? I'm like. Um, Yes, I guess. I, I, how would I say, like, what would I say here? Um, so I think it's really important that activism is not something that you do, and then you finish your three, four hours of activism volunteering a week, and then you go back home and everything is fine. I, I don't want to be a coconut. I'm not brown on the outside, white on the inside. I need that brownness. I need that seriousness, that queerness to be part of every single thing that I do. And I think that that's something that we all can do. And it's it's quite accessible for all of us to recognize when you are on a panel with three other white people to turn to the moder- moderator, which I did, to turn to the moderator and be like, no, actually, can you ask me a juicy question because this question is shit.
1: Love that. Thank you for that. Um, to- Are there particular organizations or ways that uh, for people to know more about the kind of activism that is happening in Syria in terms of supporting uh, in a grassroots way the LGBTQ communities there?
4: Are you still talking to me? I'm assuming.
1: Um, Yes, I'm sorry. That was not clear.
4: Oh, um, I think there's a lot of organizations that are happening outside of Syria because that's the that's the the. the reality we live in. If you have an organization happening inside of Syria, that organization would be arrested and ended within hours. Uh, There is in Turkey, there's in uh, Vienna as part of um, a bigger organization called uh, Rainbow Bird, I think. Um, Just off the top of my head, those are the organizations. There's a lot of subcommittees within bigger organizations like Rainbow Refugee, like Rainbow Railroad in Toronto, who are uh, focusing on queer Arab or queer Syrians specifically.
3: And I would also like to add, um, if I could really quick, that in Chicago, there's a great organization called Syrian Community Network. And then in Cleveland, there's a great one called Refugee Response. (laughs) And um, both of those organizations I mean, they deal with refugee issues here in the US, but that's, like Danny said, it's really hard to do that kind of stuff in Syria on the ground because the government would shut it down so fast. So there's a lot of organizations like all over the world, um, and especially even in this country that can then help like directly to the Syrian
1: people. Right, yeah, and there are, sorry, Abbas, go ahead.
2: No, I was gonna mention another organization called Outright Action International that I contribute to a lot. And that's also very helpful. Yeah. But in many cities, as like I know in Chicago, there are queer friendly mosques that you can visit if you want. And I really recommend just searching for them. They're more prevalent than you believe.
4: In in Canada, it's called at the Mosque, the Mosque of Unity. And it's also queer friendly and women friendly. So women can be imams in those kind of in, in those mosques, as well as uh, they they pray um, shoulder to shoulder with 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 men rather than men at the front and women in the back.
1: Thank you and I, I was going to say that uh there's there are a lot of different kinds of organizations as well in terms of like what their mission is some are centered around immigration or helping people who are seeking refuge or asylum some are like helping people with shelter in their home countries and so there are a lot of different organizations that have different bases um, it sounds like the situation I'm more aware of the situation in Egypt but in Syria It sounds similar in the sense that the vast majority of the organized structured um, work that is institutionalized has to be elsewhere for legal legal reasons. Um, But yeah, somebody's asking if there's a list of resources and I'd be happy to put that together at some point. But my next question is for you, Dita, which is uh, what are the resources that are, through your organization that are available for Syrian or LGBTQ immigrants in NYC that might be watching this?
5: yeah, um, thank you for that question. I would say a few things, which is that um, you know, one of the things that's important, and I mentioned this in my remarks, is um, that we're try- we try to ensure that there's greater equity and access to resources in the city. Um, and that includes immigrants, that includes immigrants regardless of immigration status. So if you're undocumented, Um, And, uh, of course, uh, regardless of sexual orientation or identity. And so um, that is everything from health access to at this moment, particularly due to COVID-19. We know that there's concern about food. A lot of people are are, um, uh, struggling with their ability to um, not be hungry, right, food insecure. And so there's a lot of free food options from pantries to meal delivery to hubs where people can go pick food up. Um, That's both Halal and and, uh, Kosher, other accommodations that are needed. Um, There is um, uh, free immigration legal help. This is a thing that we often um, unfortunately hear because people uh, don't, you know, there's no right to immigration counsel in in the federal um, immigration both enforcement and deportation or court system. Um, and so we've invested a lot of money as a city in free immigration support. Um, so there's, there's lots of resources. We have a whole gu- a resource guide both at this moment and in general for new New, new Yorkers um, or those who are figuring out how to navigate what can be very uh, confusing bureaucracies. And so our website is a really good resource for folks, um, nyc.gov immigrants. Um, And our website in its entirety is translated into 10 different languages, including Arabic. Um, And so we really hope people use it, navigate it, pull the resources that they need. And if they have questions, our team is there um, to provide assistance and to provide support or advocacy if that's needed.
1: Thank you so, so much for that. Uh, Norm, my next question is for you, and it's about... uh, Specifically, um, in, pre- in preparing for Ibrahim, what were some things that you were thinking about, what were parts of embodying that that were exciting, and what were things that you feel like you're challenged by or you're trying to like continue to grapple with in developing the character?
3: Sure. Um, so Ibrahim and I are very similar people, which is frustrating um, because, I mean, as an actor, it's fun and also difficult to play somebody who is so much like you. Um, so in some ways it's really easy to slide into who he is and be able to embody him in a way that I, that I hope is fruitful I mean' Abbas it's in a rehearsal so if I'm wrong here he can call me out but um he's a lot of <laughs> he's a lot of fun to play because at the same time you know I because of my circumstances growing up and like basically being a queer Arab person living with my not so conservative parents but you know My parents who are immigrants who are from a different world who are not 1000% accepting maybe you know like teetering on it and also spending so much time in Syria as I was a kid like really all of these factors like suppressed my queer identity quite a bit growing up Um, and I didn't come out until rather late in my life so there's a lot of things about me like internally that um, a lot of things about my queerness that are suppressed that I I'm still even though I'm like 30 years old I'm still like trying to, like, free myself up even more. Um, and Ibrahim is a person that is not like that, is a person who is much more comfortable with his greatness, And it's it's nice to explore that aspect, because that also helped me with exploring myself in that way. Um, a couple of other inspirations is I know... Abbas and I are, are, are longtime friends, and so I know, you know, kind of where Ibrahim comes from. Um, and it's nice to hopefully be doing an honor to Abbas by like portraying this character that I I think is very important to him as well um because Ibrahim is not just like me or Abbas it's you know there's so many so many queer Arabs like us that I hope you know could see the play and see themselves in this character that and think like you know that's kind of like I've been through that like that's my experience too and that is another big driving force um it's kind of oh like i said earlier about acting and storytelling is also acting representation and um hoping that people can see this and see themselves on stage and the effect of seeing yourself on stage or rather i guess on the zoom stage um gives you the sense of identity that's really important that you know you see someone like you being performed and you think oh that's that's like me like i'm on that like that's just like me and that experience is so important because we have you know a lot of white kids in America grow up and they see themselves in cartoons from when they're so young and then they see themselves in preteen movies as they get older and then on the Disney channel and you know whatever and that just continues adding to them for us it's not really like that we don't really see ourselves ever and so we feel like we're not as valued um so it's so important to me to be able to give that value to people and let them see themselves on stage there's um there's a play that I that I'm touring with called Cartography that focuses on refugee issues and statuses and we often perform it for refugee kids here in this country who like come here and you know they as Vita was saying earlier there's a lot of things they have to juggle with and disentangle to figure out how to live here and a lot of red tape across and questions that are really hard to answer and all the while grappling with their identities you know and then they see our play and they for for a moment they're like wait that's me that's me on that stage like wow I'm I'm still a person, right? Like, and this is my story and I get to see it, you know. Um, one more note on that is, um, just because it's, it's kind of a, a recent topic, there's a show on Hulu called Rami, which I'm sure people have heard of, of course. And that recently won a Peabody Award, which is amazing. Um, that's the first TV show in my life that has ever made me feel represented in this country in my entire life. And to me, that show is so important because it's just nice, it's just really nice to see my people like on the screen, you know? Um, And that's always my inspiration as an actor is to do the same thing for people just like me.
1: I wholeheartedly agree about Rami. I feel like I've been in so many conversations with all of my Arab American friends, just like freaking out over how accurate the littlest of things is. And it's not something you realize that you're missing until you see it and you're like, I've so been in this bubble that I didn't even realize that there was a possibility of being seen like that. And that everybody else just has that all the time, which you like forget. Um, so like You're not even aware that you are having a very different lived experience from most other people. Um, we have an audience question that is really exciting and I'm gonna open up to all of you, which is um, how do you recommend getting better representation of the queer Syrian story in plays and theaters across the country? And I'm gonna actually adjust that question and say across the world.
3: <laughs> I could jump in on that really quickly. Um, the, the not so easy answer is to write stuff and make sure that theaters pick it up and do it. Um, and the kind of easier answer is to write to theaters, literally write to them and tell them, here are some plays that I've found by these and these people and I would love to see them in your season. And I think if enough people do that, especially in these times that we're in right now where the country seems to be finally waking up in these senses, um maybe they'll listen and i hope maybe somebody else can give a more articulate answer than that
2: similarly write to those theaters and say these are playwrights that i want to hear more from why do not you commission their work theaters commission work all the time
4: yeah, That was a very short answer, Abbas. Um, <laughs> I would say that um, it's it's a space like this. Like uh, You have a novelist, you have a playwright, and you have an actor. The three of us are here. Um, I happen to have a novel if you'd like to read it, Abbas, and we'll see where that goes.
2: <laughs> send it to me. I like I
4: it. <laughs> oh God, yes. When I finish this latest one, I'll send it to you. I'm sure Noor would play a great character in that. <laughs>
3: We also have a lawyer no, I- on the panel in case things get sticky, so maybe Lisa can help
1: us <laughs> We're gonna sue these theaters for not go representing us. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I mean, I mean, honestly, like when I started reading Mock for Mock, I immediately was imagining you in that role, Noor, I was like, oh, I could totally see Noor saying most of these things. Um, I was going, and, and I guess my question, which I follow up on that is, um, and that's actually a question that is very specific to this moment where in real, if COVID had not happened, we would be having this conversation in Dixon place right now. And Danny would not be with us because we would be restricted to the people that are in New York. Um, and so it's something that's been really exciting about moving everything virtual. And of course, like you do lose a lot with that, uh, but like being able to open it up to like activists and writers and artists that are elsewhere and audiences that are elsewhere. I'm looking at our attendees right now, and I have like multiple friends who are queer and currently living in the Middle East who are here. And that's not, like, that's, that feels so meaningful. And so my question is like, what do you imagine um, the kind of work we're doing having an impact on um, the politics of the region, the culture of the region, how people see themselves represented, not just here, but there. And that's also for everyone. <laughs>
5: I can start with that. Um, You know, (laughs) take a minute, guys. I, uh, you know, I'd say a couple of things, and and I think this was said a little bit earlier. There's a lot of different roles in a movement, right? And it's really important um, at this moment in time, in particular. Something I've said to um, my folks is you know, come in, uh, but lead with kindness and generosity, recognize that everybody's got a role to play. And a part of what we haven't seen in past movements is the ability to build across, to build consensus, to build solidarity, um, and to continue to, to encourage each other and inspire each other to continue, right? Because this is hopefully a continuation and a long haul of the the fight and we each have a role to play. So I might not be a playwright, I might not be a writer or an actor, but I'm gonna rely on these guys to tell these stories because these are critical and I can use my voice and my skill and my tools to amplify them, to make sure other people are listening so that when we get to the table, around our demands, around accountability for our systems, we're including queer Syrian communities in that process. And so it's really, really important that we're valuing all our voices, that we're centering the voices of the of our communities, of some of the most vulnerable, of those who have been at our margins and should be at the center in the work that we're doing.
4: If I can jump right after that, that would be great. Um, I think for me, to be honest, you were asking specifically how to change the systems, the politics over there. And honestly, I don't give an F about the systems and politics over there because I don't have the power to, to change it. I don't have the smarts to study for I don't know how many years, like better to become a lawyer. And then that like, basically I, I write stories because I'm really good at lying. Um. So <laughs> I think that I would leave the work for um, of the, 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 the big systems for folks who are capable of doing that work, who have the the expertise, who, who I trust with that work, like somebody like Peta here. Um, but um, for me specifically, um, I was on Nanaimo, which is a tiny little town on Vancouver Island, which is like the end of the world. It's literally like closer, like Hawaii is closer or something. I don't know. Um, okay. And, and I was there and I was at this event in a, in a university and this like 18, 19 year old Syrian uh, comes to me and and he tells me that uh, he, he's not out of the closet to his family, he is, he's son of immigrants. He's not actually, like he's a second generation, I think they call him. Um, and he told me that he found himself in my novel. And that is something that I really, really value because I feel like my role is not just to represent, not just to tell stories, but also to leave my work unfinished. So you as the reader can come in, insert your own ideas, insert your own person into that work, and then produce something beautiful that is yours, that is uniquely yours, that represents who you are.
1: That is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, I about Noor, Do you have anything to add to that? Okay. I think Vita cool.
3: and Danny summed it up really well.
1: Okay. We have we have a we have a question about whether this uh, panel will be recorded for conversation. And yes, the conversation will stay on Facebook Live forever. And in terms of the actual uh, performance of Mask for Mask, which is going to be happening on June 19 on Friday at 8 p.m that will be up for four days. So you could, if you are not available at that particular time, you can also catch it later. And we have one more audience question, which is, uh, for Danny or anyone else, I feel like the media narrative surrounding civil war and the refugee crisis has overshadowed the Syrian uprising to the point where it gets erased from the conversation about on the Arab Spring. Do you feel the need to represent Syrians as an activist rather than just victims in your own work?
4: Uh, Okay, Uh, that's, uh, Dear Anonymous Attendee, thank you for that question, (laughs) Um, I think I don't follow up with the Syrian civil war, the Syrian Syrian, uh, uprising, I don't actually follow up with the news. I don't actually sit down in front of CNN or Al Jazeera, and watch it. And that's doctor's orders. That's my therapist being like, you have to disconnect from that because it's triggering the hell out of you. Um, so I, I personally, as Danny, I think that what I do is that I represent Uh, my unique experience as this intersectional person, being the Syrian person, being the queer person, being the Canadian person, being the person of color, being the person with some mental health issues. And I'm I'm not neither of those people. I'm not just one of those ideas. I am that like space between all of those ideas. And I want to represent that, to be honest. I think that that's the most authentic thing that I can do. There are people out there who are doing the work, doing fantastic work regarding the uprising in Syria, regarding the political situation over there. And I don't have to be all all, everything that is Syrian. I don't have to be everything for every Syrian and I don't have to represent um, every aspect of the Syrian crisis for white people to watch and see. So personally speaking, I am this person in front of you? And I i do my best to be the best person that I am. That, that, that question was hard.
3: <laughs> that is a hard Thank question. You. And I would also like to chime in a little um, because here's my, my very short answer to this. What Danny was saying is really important because um, not all of us have to be activists, right? Um, and for a lot of us, what's happening in Syria is very triggering. when the the war started, when everything started, it was really difficult for me and my family to watch it all happening from here and know what's happening to our families there, to, to our neighbors, to our, you know, and seeing the destruction happening in cities and hearing these stories coming out that they don't show on the news here, it is highly triggering. It's very similar to the Black Lives Matter movement where they tell you, like, don't share these videos of black men and women getting killed on your story on your like social media feeds because that's very triggering for black people and of course it is and i know exactly how that feels because like i could not bear to see those images and those things coming out of syria when the war was happening and still today you know that being said i think in syria it's really hard to have a voice because your voice very quickly gets suffocated so for me as a syrian i think it's mildly my duty to represent the syrian people in any way that I can, albeit to do it smartly and safely, because there is still this kind of danger that you could put people in danger by by being too loud. You know, you that's that's a very dangerous reality that exists with the regime that's in power there. Um, there are things that you can do, and there are things that you are better not to do. Um, which sounds really hopeless, but that's that's the reality of it. Um, there's ways to help, but there are ways be smart about that. I I know a lot of Syrian directors and actors that I've worked with that we're trying to do the work here in this country because we know that we can't really do it anywhere else but we kind of have to do that work mostly in secret Um, but mainly just to inspire to be honest to inspire American people with money and with power and clout to make the changes that we actually don't have the power to do.
5: I'll just add really quickly to that to say that you know, I, I'll underscore my, for my own personal experience when you, you know, when I see um, human rights violations in Iran, uh, things where uh, you know the women's rights movement, the LGBTQ movement, uh, people fighting and advocating for their their lives. There's a you 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 sort of think about yourself and the privilege and that you have, or the power that you have, situated where you are. And, and what are the contributions that you can make. And for every thing that you're contemplating, there's a level of sacrifice, there's a calculation, right? If I do X, Y, and Z, is my family at home gonna be okay? Um, if I do this, is this actually supportive or does it reveal or endanger people in some way? There's a lot that goes into that. And I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves and that responsibility uh, weighs on us in in, um, in a way that potentially doesn't allow for um, the best uh, response, but I think also is reflective of the fact that this isn't just the burden of a one person or people, right? It's what's happening in Syria shouldn't be just the burden of the Syrians, right, amongst us or on this panel, that this is the fact that we see these kinds of crises over and over again, they're connected, right? They're part of this much larger system of power and, um, uh, and violence against people uh, all across the globe. It's all connected. What we see here today, right, is connected with what's happening in Syria, is connected with, with what's happening in Iran and China, et cetera. And so it is important, I think, to stand up for each other because sometimes it can be harder Right. When you see your your home being uh, being uh, having bombs rained down upon it or or your family is there that in some ways isn't fair. And it's for the rest of us to sort of step in where we can.
1: Thank you so much. We are at time. I want to and I want to thank you all four of you so much for being with us and for all of our audience members. We're so grateful for all of you.